Welcome to the Healthy Returns Podcast, where I sit down with founders, investors, and executives innovating in health tech, fitness and wellness, and human performance. My guest today is Dr. Tara Bishop, founder and managing partner of Black Opal Ventures. Black Opal is a venture firm investing in early stage healthcare technology companies and recently announced a new $58 million fund. In today's episode, we discuss traditional medicine versus consumer health, coverage of lifestyle interventions, and how startups are helping translate evidence into care. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's episode. Hi, Dr. Bishop. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show. Got a lot to get into. Probably most importantly that your fund, Black Opal Ventures, recently announced a new $58 million fund, which you know I'm sure we'll talk about. But hope you can just start by introducing yourself to listeners and you know maybe highlight some key roles that you've played before Black Opal. Great. Thanks, Nolan. And really, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. So I've had a very wavy career path in healthcare and happy to tell you a little bit about how I got to where I am now. I now am an investor in the venture capital space. I invest in healthcare technology companies that are early phase companies. Um, We call them C to series B companies, but really early phase venture capital investing. But I've had this wavy path to get to where I am. I actually studied engineering as an undergrad at MIT and took some of that chemical engineering work. Uh, I was doing a lot of work with biotechnology and biomedical engineering and applied that to the healthcare side. So I went to medical school right after college and then had a relatively traditional path. So I went to residency after medical school in New York City as an internal medicine resident. And early, this was the early 2000s. At that time, um, healthcare, and you might argue or we might debate that healthcare is still broken, but it was very broken at the time when I started residency. And I remember making kind of a conscious decision at the time that I didn't want to just see patients, but I wanted to do something to improve healthcare. So that has taken me on this very exciting and interesting path. After residency, I did a fellowship in general internal medicine and got my master's in public health and then joined the faculty at Cornell, really with a focus on health services research and improving the healthcare system through research and operations and seeing patients. That was at Cornell Medical School, and I was in the departments of health policy and internal medicine. And then about seven years ago, I actually moved over to the private sector and moved to a consulting company called McKinsey. McKinsey is a large global consulting company, well-known in the industry that does a lot of healthcare work. And one of the things that was happening in healthcare at the time was we were we had a, a big change because of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, it increased access to insurance, but it also changed and put in a lot of policies to try and drive value in healthcare rather than just volume in healthcare. And so at McKinsey, we were doing a lot of work in value-based care and helping our clients succeed in that environment. So I joined as the first medical director at McKinsey and worked with a number of clients to help them really move into the value-based arena. And then a few years later, I actually got tapped on the shoulder to join a very early phase startup company. So after being in academic medicine and in consulting, I moved over to the startup world. And I was the chief clinical officer at a health insurance company, a startup health insurance company called Bind. And Bind was actually taking this concept of value-based care and trying to drive value mostly through insurance design. And so what we did was change the under 
underwriting model of health insurance so that you could tie in benefits to value and, and toggle the way pricing was. Um, it was a really novel product that uh, did very well in the market, and that company ended up getting uh, absorbed by United Health Group in 2021. It's now under the uh, name called Surest rather than Bind, and so that's still an active uh, health insurance product at United Health Group. And then after that point in time, I got ready to launch our fund, and I launched the fund with a good friend of mine from college. We were college classmates at MIT. Uh, she has been a venture capital investor for the last 20 years. I've been a healthcare uh, physician executive for the last 20 years. And we are bringing together our two backgrounds to really invest in sort of the next generation of healthcare technology companies. Her having worked in venture capital and you with all of your different types of healthcare experiences, even your success in raising raising around and what most people would call a pretty tough fundraising environment just that goes to show so congratulations on that yeah it's been a great uh it's been an exciting ride but also a, a big learning experience and you're, as you said if it's been a somewhat challenging environment to raise capital particularly in venture capital but uh we have some amazing investors that are around the table with us and really aligned with our mission and our goals this podcast and kind of what I'm interested in is all about fueling the conversation between traditional healthcare and consumer health. Just last week, I had the chief medical officer of Hims and Hers, uh, Dr. Patrick Carroll, on the show. And it was really interesting to hear all of his insights, having worked in traditional primary care for over three decades and now working at a consumer health company like Hims and Hers. So maybe let's just start with defining what what consumer health is versus traditional medicine and where the divide may be in in the public discourse with that so i actually don't think there is so much of a difference so when you think about what healthcare is you know healthcare at the end of the day is caring for patients to keep them healthy, to treat disease, to help them manage their conditions. And that can be done through both more traditional health services providers. Um, it can also be done, as you as you mentioned, hims and hers, through more novel providers. But at the end of the day, the, the consumer is the patient. Um, and that's actually something that really has evolved in my 20 years in practice. Um, you know, when I first started practicing, the concept of, of, of a patient being a consumer was not something we were talking about. Now we talk about that all the time, that patients are the ultimate consumer of healthcare services. And how do we actually help um, make sure that product that they're consuming, that service that they're consuming is actually affordable, accessible, and easy to navigate. So in many ways, I actually think the health, the more traditional healthcare ecosystem has actually started to really embrace the concept of consumerism. Um, now, one of the things you mentioned was a company that is, it, it's a direct-to-consumer company. And I think that's where we actually start to see differences between what may be more, more established or legacy healthcare services companies to some of the newer ones. Um, so one of the big areas in healthcare is coverage. So how do you pay for healthcare? And for most Americans, that comes from health insurance. So if I have health insurance, I go see the doctor, I go to the hospital, I get a bill at the end of the day, and a portion of that bill is paid for by the health insurance company. What we have seen is in with the advent of sort of direct consumer models, many of these companies actually bypass the health insurance 
uh, aspect of things. Um, and I, again, I don't think it's actually very different. You know, you can have amazing companies that or providers that are providing really consumer centric care that's covered by health insurance. You can also have companies that are providing amazing consumer-centric care that are direct to consumer and not covered by health insurance. So I think some of the things that are not covered or are direct to consumer are things that could be covered by health insurance, but it's actually sometimes challenging or there's models to be able to pay for things differently than a typical health insurance contract. In other instances, there may be products or services that are just sort of outside of the purview of health insurance, and those might not be covered. And so instead, they're being offered as a direct-to-consumer option. Yeah, I love that you brought up coverage. And you know, when I think of um, you know a lot of these consumer health companies, I don't even necessarily think of prescribing medications, but it's more lifestyle behavior interventions. Has that been a challenge with coverage? You know, maybe you can give us an answer to why some of these lifestyle behavior interventions aren't as covered as other types of interventions. So when I think about sort of lifestyle interventions, it runs a whole gamut, right? You can think about diet and nutrition and what we consume and, and eat as being an important lifestyle intervention. You can think about things like diet, exercising and, and uh, the use of exercise rather than medications as interventions. You know, I think one of the other areas, the third bucket, are things that, that are typically not covered by health insurance, but we see a lot of things that are coming into the market around supplements and other things that, that are not typically covered by health insurance. So, you know, it's been interesting to sort of see how health insurance plays a role in that and sort of both the opportunities and challenges. It's it's so much more complex than you might imagine, unfortunately, like all things in healthcare, but, um, but there is a lot of complexity. Breaking down those three areas, diet and exercise, I think there's a few things that are very much, there's there's deep interest in actually having some way to make, tie that into the traditional healthcare ecosystem. There are insurance companies and there historically have been insurance companies that will pay for gym memberships, for example, that will cover things that allow you to actually live a healthy lifestyle. There are other companies that really focus on helping you with coaching and, and nutrition and uh, nutritional support to really help you uh, perhaps reverse diseases or manage diseases through diet uh, and nutrition. And often those do get covered by health insurance. So for example, there's a number of companies that are in the obesity management space where there is now a, a plethora of medications that are coming onto the market, but the mainstay management of someone who has obesity is to really focus on diet and exercise. And often those will get covered um, either through a plan through your health insurance or through a coverage model that's through your employer, where the employer actually directly contracts with the company and provides it free to their employees. So this whole concept of like, where, where does the coverage come from? Who manages it? gets really complicated. Employers actually play a really big role in this, and many of us don't realize it, but employer and benefit managers are constantly looking for ways to cover innovative solutions to help manage diseases that may not be always traditionally covered by your health insurance plan. So there's a lot going on that actually gives access to it. I think the other thing that we should think about, though, is, is I do think the bar for coverage really relies on evidence. You know, if you can actually go to health insurance companies and look at 
what drives their decision to cover something or not to cover it or to cover it in certain circumstances. And that's been a mainstay in health insurance. You know, I think that because health insurance is taking the, is underwriting the the cost of that health care, they have to be really thoughtful about what gets covered and what doesn't and what's the evidence to support the coverage. Um, and one of the challenges, I think, with some solutions, by no means all, is that sometimes there isn't evidence to support the use of that particular medication or that supplement or that program. And so in general, like with all of these solutions, whether it's a wellness program, whether it's a set of supplements, whether it is diet and exercise through your provider or coaching, all of these have to be able to show that there is value. And and evidence is a really big, important area in healthcare that not just doctors rely on, but payers and health insurance companies also rely on. With some of these solutions being mostly preventive, do you think it takes just a longer time for that data to come to fruition because it's preventative and because it's not looking at, hey, did this reverse disease outcomes, but instead did it prevent it 20, 30, 40 years down the line? I mean, that's a really long horizon to study. Um, You know, when we think about different types of studies, the gold standard of studying whether something works is called a randomized control clinical trial. That's really the standard that has been developed for interventions like medications, uh, like surgeries, other things that are like true interventions where you do something and very quickly you can see whether there is an outcome. And that often is what leads to FDA approvals, but it's really the gold standard of how we study things. It's really hard to study something that may have an impact 30, 40 years down the line. And if you have an intervention where you randomize people to do something that may have impact 30 years down the line, really hard to do. Um, and so some of the evidence that has that we've garnered in this area have really come from what we call cohort studies. So they're studies of, patient, of groups of people. There's some major ones, the, the big ones that came out uh, historically have been things called the nurse's health study and the doctor's study that were these really long studies that followed people over long periods of time. And in those studies, we were able to see the outcomes of things just, you know, people living their real lives, right? And you could start to see, I think, some of the early evidence on the impact of smoking, for example, or the impact of obesity on health outcomes really came from studying hundreds of thousands of people over long periods of time. You know, it isn't the gold standard, but but we have a lot of mechanisms now statistically to try and adjust for things that um, we call co-founders in healthcare. So all these things that may impact the outcome, but it, it is a harder area to study and you have to wait longer to get the impact from that and find out what the outcomes are. My favorite cohort study is the Harvard Happiness Study. Yes, um, yes. I think, I think the results from that are incredible, especially as our society is moving towards like a more individualized and isolation approach and pandemic definitely fueled that having that study being run for so long and showing the immense importance of quality and healthy relationships with others and how community is so important. There's, there's a lot of great insights to glean from that. 
Yeah. And that's a great example, Nolan, right? A study that did take decades to do. It really took a long time to get the results and to really, you have to have a really large number of people involved in these studies. Um, you have to have funding to get all of these studies done. Um, but then once those results come out, I think one of the challenges that we have in healthcare is how do you actually translate that into actually clinical care or even care that's outside of clinical care? Mental health care is a great example of that, right? We have evidence from something like the Harvard Happiness Study that certain aspects of our life can lead to better uh, mental health care, whether it is happiness, whether it's lack of getting, uh, having a, a condition like depression um, or anxiety. And we have, we now have evidence, but, you know, it is hard to get some of that evidence into practice. Um, a few ways that we can do that is we do have guidelines and there are all the major medical societies publish guidelines and it's an important area that doctors turn to when they're trying to make decisions about treatment. The second is sometimes some of these interventions are things that just take a lot longer or have to be done at home or have to be done as part of your entire lifestyle change. Now, when you think about how healthcare is is structured and organized and delivered, you know, most doctors don't have a lot of time to spend with patients, right? They, I, I practiced primary care for a number of years. I had, an, uh, you know, several hundreds of patients that were my patients, but I, you know, I see it, saw them maybe once a year, or I maybe saw them on a, you know, a few times a year if they had a chronic condition. And I didn't have the resources or the means or the team to be able to manage those patients much in a much longer way. And, and really many of these things happen in the home when you're living your life, not in the doctor's office. Um, and so I've been very excited to see both programs that, that doctors and hospitals can do, but also some of the startup companies that are coming up that really are trying to think about how do we gather data in the home? How do we help work with patients in the home? Because so much of the kinds of interventions you're talking about, whether it's lifestyle interventions or wellness interventions really happen during the day-to-day -day life of someone. And then the third is really, you know, we have seen a number of startups really kind of embrace this who have seen things like, oh my goodness, there is a study that is really valuable, but it's really hard to implement a model out of health, a traditional healthcare um, system. Why don't we build a model? Um, and that's been really exciting for us. I saw this happen a lot with mental health care. I did a lot of work about a decade ago in the challenges of access to mental health care. And it's been really exciting to me to see how the startup ecosystem has filled the gaps that just didn't exist. And again, it just may be that we aren't structured in a way to be able to do it so easily out of the traditional healthcare system. And it's exciting to see these companies really come in and, and fill the gap. But I do want to, you know, emphasize the importance of evidence. I think that is really, it's important for us as a, as we invest in companies. And I think it's important for the healthcare ecosystem to really have programs or services or models of care that are based on evidence. And that over time, you can continue to show that there's value on health outcomes um, from all of those things. I love that you brought up startups. I want to pivot our conversation a little bit to health innovation and investing. As we kind of talked about to to open this this episode, you and your firm have raised a fifty eight million dollar fund. What I've seen in the public domain, you guys have made nine public investments. Those investments, just looking at your portfolio, span obesity, IVF therapy, early lung cancer detection, even wearable devices. 
why did you choose to invest in solutions for the diseases that you did? Um, and I guess what I'm kind of hinting at here is just what is Black Global Ventures overall investment thesis? Absolutely. So we, um, our, our overall thesis is that we think there is an opportunity for healthcare to really collide with technology. And um, we are seeing that. I actually think back to 20 years ago when I was first a resident uh, after graduating from medical school, nothing in healthcare was digitized. We did everything on paper and pen. Um, I spent most of my days looking for charts and trying to read handwriting. Um, and we've come a really long way. You know, the, val the, the, the fact that we have now digitized digitize essentially all the documentation in healthcare is a really big step. And what that allows us to do is just have lots and lots more data in healthcare and um, and a lot more information about patients, about groups of patients, about how we're doing in healthcare. Um, that's much more measurable than it was 20 years ago. But we think there's an opportunity to really keep pushing on that. You know, we are at the advent of the use of AI in healthcare. We're just at the tip of the iceberg. We still don't tap into a lot of the data that are available. And so there's still lots of opportunity to really drive into the, the technology space. And, um, and so we invest in companies that really have a either use a highly innovative technology or are uh, are developing highly innovative technology to solve the hardest problems in healthcare. Um, and we don't invest just in tech for the sake of tech. I think there's always a risk of that, but it has to be tech that really drives value for the customer in healthcare, whether it's a health system, a payer, a consumer, um, a device company or a pharma company. And there's lots of, you know, there's lots of opportunity in healthcare to do that. We focus on four areas. Um, so the first is around prevention and diagnosis. So how can we use technology to prevent disease, to improve diagnosis, to make that more effective earlier and more accessible? Um, the second is around delivery of care. How do we deliver care differently in a way that's uh, more accessible, easier to navigate, and even uh, ties into how we pay for care and some of the administrative burden in healthcare? The third area is around what we call drug discovery and development, but the ultimate goal is really to think about how you get the, the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And that can go all the way from how we discover drugs so that they can get to market faster um, and uh, less expensively to actually helping doctors and patients make decisions at the point of care when they're trying to decide on the treatment uh, options for themselves. And then the fourth is really around this this thesis around the value of data in healthcare. So we invest in companies that are building the infrastructure layer around uh, data in healthcare and are helping us unlock the potential of all of that data. Now, data in healthcare is really complicated. If there are privacy concerns or cybersecurity concerns, there's regulatory concerns and accuracy concerns. And so we are looking for companies that can really help us unlock the data in very safe uh, in safe ways in healthcare. My next question was just going to be to ask you which of the first couple of investments that you're particularly excited about. But, you know, rather than that, I want to bring one up with IntelliHealth that piques my interest because it focuses on obesity, which is a chronic disease and it is a risk factor for so many other chronic conditions. That whole model is really, really uh, fascinating to me because specializing in obesity medicine, I feel like is it's getting more common now, but it's still pretty uncommon. And that blows my mind, considering that it's been, you know, a public health crisis for for so long, and as I mentioned, is a risk factor for for other diseases. So, 
Could you just briefly talk about that model of care and how they're leveraging technology and if that leveraging of technology can be applied to other types of chronic diseases? Obesity is uh, affects over 50% of the U.S. population, and it can lead to hundreds of different diseases, diabetes, heart disease, arthritis, cancer, are all risk factors of having obesity. Um, and I used to say, like, if there's a few things we can solve, we'll really will really have big impact on public health. Obesity is one of them. If we can actually help people lose weight and really keep that weight off, we'll have so many positive downstream impacts. And obesity has been sort of a complicated issue. You know, for historically, we have relied on diet and exercise. So if someone is obese, if it was a patient that came to see me, I would say, you know, I think you should try to get a diet and exercise program or app, you know, in the day it was whether whether it was, you know, something they could do at home. And sadly, often those aren't as that effective. Um, you know, as much as I, I wish we could solve obesity by just having people diet and exercise, the, the evidence shows that it really, you know, it was only effective in a, a small percentage of the population. Historically, there have been ways to treat obesity, uh, both through medication and through surgical interventions. And that has been I would say not the mainstay, but a, an aspect of care um, that people have been using for a number of years. But over the last few years, there's been this explosion of interest in the use of medications for obesity because of uh, particularly one class of medications that came out called GLP-1 inhibitors that have really shown incredible imp uh, impact on weight loss, but also impact on things like heart disease and kidney disease and downstream impact. And so as a result, I think there's been this renewed interest and in, in actually in the, of the value of using medications to treat obesity. So first of all, the, you know, the reason we invested was a really big public health problem that if we could actually even address a, a small portion of patients with that problem, you'd have really big downstream effects. Um, the second was we we backed this team because they really are the experts in obesity. So one of the co-founders, Lou Aroni, has been an obesity specialist for over three decades before anyone even thought that obesity was an illness. And he has been on a mission to really make sure that people understand that this is, uh, it's not just all lifestyle decisions and choices, but it is an illness that has downstream impacts. And so we back the team because they really are the experts in the field. As you mentioned, Nolan, one of the co-founders, Catherine Saunders, who's also an obesity medicine specialist of this company, was one of the first certified fellowship trained obesity specialists. And that was less than a decade ago. And we still have very few obesity specialists in this country. You know, compare that with cardiologists or oncologists. It's just a tiny, tiny number of people. And yet it's such a complex, important disease. And so we value the specialization of this team, but also recognize that that you can't, access to care is still limited. You can't have every, everyone cannot have access to specialists or will not have access to specialists for a, at least a foreseeable future. And that's where tech comes in. So if you can actually take some of that specialist thinking and training and actually use technology to 
improve the decision-making of, say, a primary care doctor or a nurse practitioner, you can actually start to democratize this care. And so we call this clinical intelligence software or decision support software. So it's software that's typically embedded into an electronic health record that helps you opt optimize and personalize the care, similar to what an obesity medicine specialist can do. Um, and so that's that idea of actually taking big problem, an amazing clinical team, and then really cutting edge software to address and democratize the care of obesity. Um, so great example of how tech and healthcare together are addressing a really big problem. Now, are those clinical decision support softwares, are they trained on all of the different data points that the providers are seeing? And is there a way to kind of aggregate multiple providers' data? Because otherwise, I feel like even if it's aggregating all the data from a singular provider, that is just that one provider's experience. So the original software is actually developed on an thousands and thousands of patients. Luveroni developed the software and was utilizing it with his patients and other patients at Cornell Medical School. Um, it was called BMIQ. So it was the original software. Now, the evolution of the software, and it will continue to evolve, is that actually, as you get more data points from more providers and from more patients and different data points, right? Um, so, you know, often in obesity management or weight loss management, it has been kind of tracking what you eat and uh, and tracking your exercise. But we now have things like wearable technology and ways, uh, you know, smart scales, all sorts of things that actually allow us to capture data in someone's home. And so, so when someone's in their real life, capturing activity data, capturing eating data, all of these are going to become more and more uh, integrated, I think, into healthcare. Um, and so the in with the concept of decision support, over time, these decision support pieces of software will start to keep learning as there's more and more data. And it's customized both for the kinds of medications someone might need, but also the kinds of diet and weight and exercise regimens someone might need. And so that is something that will evolve. Um, now, one of the interesting things, and, and this is where it gets a little tricky in healthcare, is is whether you need to get regulatory approvals for things like this, all areas that I think are still evolving in healthcare, um, particularly as, as it starts to become a little more like artificial intelligence. There's lots of discussions about what we will be doing from a regulatory standpoint. Um, but for now, you know, there is software that's managed and overseen by clinicians that can then be utilized to really personalize that care for the patient. Just want to close with a couple more questions. You're a physician and now moved into healthcare innovation and investing. Do you have any advice for other physicians who are looking to make that transition? I get this question a lot. And I think there's a lot of interest by physicians to, to be part of the innovation ecosystem. I think the, an important question that I always ask every physician or clinician is how much clinical time do you want to have and how much do you want to stay within a health system or in a, a service, health services model? 
I will say like there are challenges moving into the business side that uh, that I never anticipated, right? And not, you know, moving away from a system. I'd been working in hospitals and health systems for 15 years before I moved over to the private sector. And it was a very big change for me. Um, so I had to have a lot of resilience and open-mindedness to really learn something very new sort of mid in my career. Um, so that's an important question to ask. Like how much do you want to change? How much do you want to move out of a typical health system. Um, and for people who do, I think I think just m m meeting people, um, speaking to people who've had other paths and understanding what the opportunities are on a one-on-one -on -one basis could be really valuable. Um, the second is really sort of getting out into the ecosystem. There's tons of things that happen in the healthcare innovation ecosystem. Um, I live in New York City, and we have a number of organizations that hold events that that bring together this ecosystem that I wasn't as aware of until I actually left to help the health system, the walls of the health system. And so keeping an eye on what people are doing in the innovation ecosystem and uh, either partaking in some of those communities or getting involved in those communities can be really a really good way to get exposure. And then once you get exposure, I think there's lots of opportunities for doctors to play a role in this, even if you're not going to change your life full time. Um, so being an advisor for a company, being an advisor for a fund, all ways that you can actually get involved. And I personally believe that we need a lot of doctors in this space. Like I, I really feel strongly that in fact, the clinical tra training, the real life practice that doctors have and the, the reality of healthcare, those are really important skills and experiences to bring to the table. You're even seeing like big health systems are now starting to open their own venture arms where they're investing to investing in these sort of solutions and startups. So as you had mentioned, you do need the expertise from people that practice in a real clinical setting for, for so many years. I do think that's really important. And, you know, I think one of the things that we are hoping to kind of bring to the table out of our fund is a way to bridge, bridge that in some ways, um, because I do think it's really important that practicing clinicians, trained clinicians are, are playing a role in this. What are some other spaces, whether it's diseases or conditions that that you think are, you know, poised for disruption through healthcare technology? So when we think about like a disease area, I think a lot of things in healthcare, almost almost every disease in healthcare, um, there's there's probably six areas that that we focus on largely because they are they represent sort of the largest problems and opportunities in healthcare. And you sort of heard earlier the areas that we focus on from health healthcare delivery to personalized medicine to diagnostics. So that's the entire, an entire ecosystem almost. I, I would almost say like the horizontals that happen in healthcare. Um, but we, you know, we are very interested in oncology. Um, it's the second leading cause of death. We spend a lot of money on oncology and yet we still have, you know, premature death and, and morbidity from diagnoses of cancer. And so that's an area that we have a lot of interest in. Um, cardiovascular disease, it continues to be an area we're interested in. That's also the number one cause of death in both men and women. And we think there's opportunity to improve cardiovascular care. Women's health is a space we are actively looking at. And we do have, as you mentioned, one company in the IVF space, but as we all know, women's health spans more than that. And, and there's lots of conditions that 50% uh, that of the population, over 50% of the population is grappling with. And so 
That's a big space for us. And then, as I said, obesity, diabetes, we have investments there, but big opportunities and big problems. And then the third, the last area is really mental health care. Um, we have yet to do an investment solely focused on this, although one of our companies has, a, as you mentioned, a wearable technology that has an ability to do some monitoring of patients who have depression and other mental health in, uh, conditions. Um, but this is an area where access is really a challenge, and we still have areas where we don't have great diagnostics uh, or great uh, therapy plans. Uh, so mental health care. And then the last one is cognitive impairment. So as the as we have an aging population, we know that the number of people who will be living with cognitive impairment and dementia is just going to grow. Um, it is actually the largest uh, cost driver in this country, larger than many of those other conditions, because of the longitudinal aspect of cognitive impairment and the need for so much caregiving. Um, so that's the last area that we're really focusing on. Dr. Bishop, thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. Um, I, I wish you and your team the best of luck as you continue to deploy uh, the fund. And just before you go, if you could share where people can follow your work and the, the work of Black Opal Ventures and how they can keep updated. Thanks, Nolan. Yes. So we have a website. It's called BlackGlobalVentures.com. We're on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, and so we're easily available through the social media and the web. Amazing. Great. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, Nolan.